Hello and welcome to Time for Cakes and Ale episode 32 with me Bex and me Eason and it's the middle of summer the convention season would normally be in full swing right now except it's 2020 so uh, the normal rules do not apply so we thought it was a perfect opportunity to talk not just about the format of conventions in the past and this year but also how everything that's happened this year might have an effect on the way conventions are run in the future. Yeah, so globally, life has been obviously completely disrupted uh, by the COVID-19 pandemic. But what has been interesting um, across all sectors of life is understanding, I think, how different things have adapted, how things have been cancelled, how things have uh, been changed, and also how potentially what's happening now might have very long-term repercussions for for how we live our lives in the future. And I don't want to trivialize all the different things that happen in in the world and in and uh, you know in people's lives. But one aspect I think uh, that I suppose we became acutely aware of in the last sort of couple of months has been uh, going to conventions. Uh, mainly because a lot of people we follow on Twitter, you know, have been talking about this. Uh, we often go to a variety of different conventions throughout the year. And it was just interesting to see how uh, different conventions have changed uh, during the pandemic. And I just wonder whether some of these changes are essentially here today, whether they will have uh, an effect on, on how sustainable conventions are in the future, and potentially you know whether there are any benefits to the uh, way that conventions have happened this year that highlight ways in which you know arguably quite a um, a static format could could change in the future. So Beck, so I suppose to kick it off, I mean we don't have to go into too much depth about it, but I thought it'd be useful maybe to go over some of the reasons why we go to conventions, why people go to conventions, and and maybe even just from those examples. Um, what kind of different format of convention there are. Yeah, so I guess there's, there's two main categories. You've got the fan-run conventions. Um, some of the ones that we've attended have, have been like uh, EasterCon, WorldCon, uh, FantasyCon. There's a lot of fan-run conventions that happen all over the world all year. And they they can be very much sort of genre-focused. A lot of them can be very heavily literary-focused. Um, even though they are fan-run events, they are often used by professionals as networking events. And so sometimes the lines can get a little bit blurry as mm. to exactly what the purpose of these conventions are. But they are very distinct in the way that they operate compared to sort of professionally run conventions, especially some of the really big conventions, which can at times seem like much more sort of autograph mill kind of things where you can have incredibly long lines waiting to get your picture taken and which I, I think speaking for both of us probably don't appeal to us as much as the slightly more relaxed atmosphere of a fan run convention. And I think with all of these different conventions that do run through the year I think it's fair to say that there is almost a, um, a convention calendar that, that exists and um, we don't go to everything every year, but it's remarkable how they are a fixed event sometimes where you know you are going to catch up with friends who you haven't seen for a long time. Um, they are very focused uh, times when you can really sort of catch up with people who you know, but also you might meet people who have similar interests to you as well. Um, it kind of brings it brings people together. Um, and they are, I think, an important part of how, certainly in you know in in genre media, how people interact. Although I think they are maybe less important now than they once were with the advent of of social media as a means to keep everyone um, connected in some way. But the fact that conventions have survived this long, I think, really tells you that they do have quite a fundamental role in how fans can stay in touch with things catch up with each other and stay sort of up to date with with what's going on in in the different fields that they're interested in. 
So, so what do you think has been the state of things in in twenty twenty in terms of the options that conventions have? I mean, I, th- I think that there's probably quite a few situations ranging across the year where maybe at the start of the pandemic there wasn't much time to react other than to cancel things, but over time I think there's been a a change in how conventions have actually uh, decided to continue in 2020. Yeah, when you take something like uh, EasterCon, which obviously happened over the Easter weekend, or rather didn't happen this year, there wasn't a tremendous amount of warning um, that the organisers had that everything was going to have to get cancelled. So there wasn't really much opportunity to make alternative plans of what to do. Um, Whereas, you know, you compare that to Worldcon, which just happened this past weekend, and they've been able to put on a, a virtual world kind of sorts with panels still happening. You know, I, I feel incredibly sorry for the people who have worked so hard for so many years sort of putting together the New Zealand Worldcon and for it to have ended up happening like this. But they at least something was able to be put on for the people who had signed up to it. Yeah, and the one that I think crystallised the issue a lot for me was uh, San Diego Comic-Con. Um, which I'm going to get this wrong now because I've lost all sense of time um, <laughs> in the last few months. But was that last weekend or the weekend before, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Um, so obviously uh, it, it didn't take place in its uh, physical form. And I've never been before. You've never been before. It's one of those big conventions that everyone knows about, I suppose. It's got a big emphasis on a diverse array of uh, you know TV, film, comics i suppose is its major focus um, although there is a lot of interest in you know books and other media as well i think it really it's it's probably morphed into something a little bit more reflective of what you could probably describe as sort of mainstream pop culture mm. so there's lots of panels where uh, you often get these uh, these big events focused around upcoming releases of films uh, tv shows there are a lot of sort of celebrity panels where they bring people into uh, talk about something which has happened or what was quite interesting in the case of this year was a, a lot of these kind of retrospective panels mm. uh, where people look back on other films and TV shows. But it is kind of a bit of an advertising thing as well. It's how, you know, it's how I think a lot of the big studios in film and television are able to get the word out about what's coming out. And it's, it's a good time, I think, for them to build hype around what's coming up in the future. Now, it's odd because I've, I've never had the urge to go to Comic-Con. Um, I've never thought it was something I was particularly interested in because often, you know, the few relevant nuggets of information you get on the news over, you know, over the next couple of days where there might be some leak of some trailer or something or somebody will say some interesting gossip about, you know, a film franchise or a TV show or something, whatever it is. But this year they decided to do uh, Comic-Con at Home where it largely ran in terms of content uh, on YouTube. I think it was... I think there was its own channel, but also it was it was heavily promoted uh, on uh, the IGN and Collider sort of uh, YouTube channels, and they were putting together a lot of these panels. I think they must have been hosting them in some capacity. And so, over the course of uh, the Comic Con weekend, there were there was essentially a live stream of the whole event, but also all the individual panels were available as separate chunks, and you can watch them and review them sort of well into the future because they're on YouTube now and they'll never go away. And what I found myself doing was actually watching quite a few of these panels. I think there were lots of TV shows and films and retrospectives and things which were kind of interesting to to watch. And I suppose that was my first feeling that something was interesting about conventions this year being held virtually, which was there are conventions like that that I would never think of going to that all of a sudden were online. And... I thought, oh, I'll have a look at that and actually found quite a few things that I did want to watch or have bookmarked and I'll watch at some point in the future. So an advantage of the virtual format was immediately I realised, as somebody who wouldn't go to these things normally, that it was a bit more opened up to people who geographically wouldn't go, who might have had a marginal interest in what happens, but would never have thought of paying to go or attend, um, like for a whole, you know, uh, long weekend or something uh, to go and uh, see all of the content. 
Yeah, and no having to queue up outside a hall for eight hours in order to to get in and see the thing that you wanted to see. Um, it, it's interesting what you were saying about the business aspect of that in terms of studios and TV networks using them as a sort of hype machine to leak things and get people interested in new things that are coming up and talk about future content uh, versus how this year there were a lot of retrospectives. I think it's partly there's a problem that do we even know when future content is going to be coming out or being made? A lot of things that should be out now haven't come out because everything's been postponed. You know, some films are getting postponed into next year, but they would have all been at Comic-Con last year promoting what was going to happen. But that business side of it, you do get that even at smaller fan-run conventions as well, just on a much smaller scale. I think potentially the group of people who are suffering the most from not having these small fan-run conventions this year in person are going to be small press publishers who can't do their usual book launches that they would normally have. And, you know, and they might rely on book launches to not only sell a good number of books at the start, but also get word of mouth out about what's coming up. And it's very difficult to do that when you can't, you know, stick it in the programme for, you know, half hour book launch, come along and have a glass of wine and buy a book kind of thing. It's very difficult to get that going in another format. Hmm. And I think, you know, although there have been several conventions which were completely cancelled this year, because there was no obvious way to put them on, uh, there has been the emergence of uh, smaller uh, online sort of gatherings, I suppose, sort of little virtual cons which have uh, sprung up, um, often around the times of other cancellations, just as a chance to um, have something in their place, which have been very much just panel-focused, obviously. And then you have um, the conventions, which are probably the ones that have always had a bit of a virtual presence anyway, or have been tech-savvy enough to to start to have some content available online. Those have been the ones which I think have been able to adapt a little bit faster to a changing need to have a lot of content hosted virtually, whether it's um, streamed on bespoke platforms or or on YouTube and then kept up uh, permanently as well. So I think there is a slight difference with the fact that not everyone is able to to transition to a virtual format. It doesn't always work for everyone, um, but some have been able to do it. And I think it has set a precedent potentially for how you could increase attendance or interest in some of these things, potentially by opening up your uh, attendance to everyone in the world. But saying that again, you know, when we were watching uh, the Comic-Con stuff on YouTube, I mean, clearly there's a huge amount of uh, advertising support it's a very corporate event that allows um an event like that to be hosted in such a swish manner i suppose the other problem is especially for fan run conventions there's a lot of money involved in setting these things up mm. um so how you're able to actually make uh, a usable functioning format it's not as straightforward as just hoping that everyone can hop on a zoom call and and broadcast it to the world so although it's a nice thing to have, I, I, I don't think we can expect it'll become the norm just because it's, you know, it's technically quite complicated and it will cost money and that has to come from somewhere. And although it's great to be able to host a lot of this content for free on YouTube, etc., at some point there's money involved in, in setting these things up uh, and making them happen in the first instance. And it kind of drifts into that, that whole area of you know free content and and you know how that's supported and how it's acknowledged etc which i think conventions can't really switch to in the long term because it just doesn't it doesn't really uh, work if anything it becomes more of a thing about creating content for people to watch but like you say it doesn't help with the business side of things which is that that use of a convention by various uh, people whether it's authors publishers studios whatever to be able to use it as a format to advertise what they're doing and get their work out there. I mean, that's you know, it's it's not being it's not being created for free. Um, it's stuff that is it's art in the form of books, comics, TV, film, and and they need to make money. So, yeah, it can't be a permanent 
free free resource if there's no means to engage with the audience who are also a, a purchasing audience as well. We're going to be buying a lot of this stuff. Having these virtual panels, it, it, it does get around a couple of the things I've always found really frustrating about in-person conventions. One is that inevitably, when you look through the schedule, there are always some clashes where there's two panels that you would really love to go to both of them and you can't. Whereas if they're available virtually after the fact, you can go and you can watch both of them at your leisure. Uh, two, there's inevitably always a panel somewhere that the organisers wildly underestimate the interest in mm. and half the people who want to go physically cannot get into the room. And again, it gets around that problem because you're not going to have a block on the number of people who can watch the you know, the stream of a panel as it goes out or you know, afterwards if, if they want to. So it, it does fix a couple of those issues, but then you lose other things at the same time you know there's often at a convention an afternoon where you haven't found anything in the schedule that you particularly I, I, I definitely want to go to so sometimes you just end up kind of wandering into a random panel wandering into a random panel and finding something really interesting that you didn't expect or you might end up just sitting in the bar for a couple of hours and end up talking to some really interesting people. And it, you, you really miss that in the same way that, you know, when you were at a music festival and you had a loose end for a few hours, so you just wander into a tent and see some band that you've never heard of before um, and think, wow, how did, how did I not hear of this? You know, it, it's that, that element of surprise is going to be missing, I think. Yeah, and going back to that point about what happens at an in-person panel, I realised on some of the things I've watched virtually where um, a lot of them have been pre-recorded ones which they've put on. I, and I get the feeling that actually with the Comic-Con panels, and that's just the example I'm going to use a lot of because it's fresh in my mind, a lot of them obviously were all pre-recorded. Um, and it was clear that people had been allowed maybe on Twitter or something to submit questions in advance so the moderator could ask a few questions at the end from fans or the public or whatever what we don't have as easily i think in a virtual convention is a means to have that immediate connection between the audience and the panel so the panel can talk about things you know in an hour-long session it might be a you know 45 minute discussion amongst the panel but then it opens up to questions and that is something which i think would be a nice thing to improve the experience of in a virtual context just so people who are watching it live could actually engage with that aspect as well. Um, I think it's a difficult thing to do because obviously it's not just a case of then um, streaming it, but you have to have uh, an ability to be that reactive to what's to what's happening with people's comments, you know, in in videos, etc., um, or having a chance for people to actually somehow call in or or interact in that way. It's a slightly different thing, but. But but that's the other side of panels. It's a it's a two way thing. It starts off with the people talking, and then it often moves to a discussion involving the audience who are there to ask questions, make comments, and things like that. So that I think is a very hard thing to translate into a virtual context. But I could see that being something that could be addressed in the future, just in terms of the the different means by which these things are, are held. Maybe there are better ways of doing it. Yeah, I've just realised that there is there is one more benefit to uh, to being in a, a virtual audience or a panel, which is that you know how every once in a while you go to a panel and it turns out to be not what you thought it was going to be, <laughs> and you have you have to do the walk of shame out of the back of the room where you try and sneak out at an opportune moment <laughs> without disturbing too many people. Um, whereas in a virtual panel, you can just close the window and you're done. <laughs> It'd be very rude to tell them that you're leaving the panel <laughs> virtually because it's it's not the thing you thought it was. And no. that's a good point, actually. How do you think it's going to alter the way the participants in the panels would choose to get involved in these things? I mean, we've both been on panels before mm. at fan-run conventions. And I don't know about you, but I always get very nervous beforehand. Mm. 
know, you're always worried about whether you know what you're talking about or, you know, are you going to get a, a ne- an unexpected negative reaction from somewhere? Is that going to get magnified if suddenly you've got a much wider audience and everything is being streamed and therefore there forever? Yeah, and also it's probably going to be recorded and if it's on YouTube, it'll be there, like, accessible well into the future. Mm. Yeah, there's... On one side of that, you have the the kind of spontaneous thing of a panel. You know, it happens and then it's over. I think very rarely do, without express permission, a lot of the stuff is not usually uh, recorded and, and broadcast afterwards. Uh, from a panelist perspective, I think it can be nerve-wracking enough, like you say, to speak in front of a room of people and not only speak, but have, a, but have to hold a conversation with your fellow panelists mm. And also keep everyone engaged in a room, but at least you have that that connectivity of seeing their faces, and you can you can respond to to the audience as well in terms of how things are going. You can see whether whether what you're saying is is keeping people engaged or not, or you know all these different factors which are there to do with the face to face aspect. Virtually, on one hand, you can treat it almost like you would a normal Zoom call or something, and you can just say you're you're looking into a into the camera on your laptop and you're seeing everyone else's faces and you know and you're and you're talking to them but i don't think that they that you're then talking to the audience you're talking to the other people on the panel and that's a slightly different thing but it's like you say it's it's actually quite stressful to think that although you can minimize the concept of it and say yeah i'm just talking to people in this conversation and that conversation is being recorded and broadcast somewhere it is quite nerve-wracking then to know that what you're saying is being kept for posterity you are essentially talking to any number of people it could be a huge number of people um, and that can be quite nerve-wracking and and stressful especially when you know that what you're saying is going out live that's one quite quite nerve-wracking thing but also that what you say is there for posterity forever potentially in the form of you know, video streaming websites and things like that so you know so you might be a bit more cautious in in what you say and how you say it but the fear of that can often compound any issues that you may have regarding you know, public speaking anyway. Um, I think that when you're in a room at a convention, that can sometimes relax the nerves because you can see that, at least at the beginning, everyone's on your side, you know, <laughs> audience and panel. So it can be, although it can be nerve-wracking before, you know, I found it quite relaxing once you've gotten going to, to be in that context. But again, it goes back to that you can't read the room because there is no room in front of you. Mm. It can be stressful to think about how you're coming across, what you're saying. Yeah, it could be just a very different experience and quite a challenging one. Yeah, I think the the prospect of having people participate on the panel from anywhere in the world and from any environment, you know, including their own living room, Mm. it, it does open up the participation a lot. We've been to what, three world cons that have happened in Europe over the past sort of decade or so. Mm. And I know that at least two of them, and, I, and I'm assuming that probably all three of them, there have been visa issues with people who wanted to attend, authors who were going to participate in it, even having visa issues in being able to enter the country where the world con was going to take place. And of course, there's going to be issues in attending for anyone who has any kind of disability that limits their ability to travel or anyone who would find that just simply staying in a hotel for several days is going to be prohibitively expensive. And the possibility for people to attend both in the audience and on panels, it can potentially open up everything to a much wider demographic than what we have at the moment, which is that you have to be able to travel and have enough wealth to travel mm. and enough spare time yeah. to do all these things. Yeah, so even in the context of, well, so there are these one-day conventions, which do often happen at weekends, but the minute you start hitting some of the three, four-day conventions, which may involve an extra half a day, a day or you know, travelling, for example, that does start to take up a, a lot of time. So... The fact that these things can be held in physical form is great, but it's interesting to see whether 
there will ever be an option where aspects of the content will be made available to a wider audience uh, just because it does increase the accessibility for anyone who wants to attend. Um, and I think coupled to that comes this question of cost mm. as well. I, I think, I mean, it's obviously a huge amount of money to put on a convention. To be very flippant, you could say, well, all, all you're doing now in a virtual context is you're inviting people across the world to participate in a group Zoom call and everyone else is watching that. Now, I think that wildly underestimates the complexity of, of what this will have to become if it is going to be a, a part of the evolution of what conventions include. Because it might be the case that virtual content becomes more prominent, but I don't know, do you, do you not think it's going to become an additional thing? So you are going to have to have a physical convention. You're going to have to have virtual elements as well, if not you know, arguably the whole thing in some context being available virtually. But then it's great that it increases participation and audience attendance and also the ability of people to appear um, on panels or as moderators, etc. But there is going to have to be a cost to that in order to keep the actual convention alive, I suppose. Um, It may be that you have reduced footfall at the physical convention, but there there is going to be a cost in the in the production of the convention. And if it's a live event that you're streaming, the live event still has to take place. Mm. If it's a virtual, a fully virtual thing where it's, you know, it's a it's a virtual Zoom call or something which is being broadcast, that still involves people giving up time, expertise, and there is equipment and issues with the amount of stuff that's going to be done that often means that this is not a free sign-up level to any of these um, platforms. There is a lot of cost involved in it. So, Conventions might have to include a virtual aspect, but do you think that there would have to be sort of almost different tiers of membership to attend these things virtually uh, as well as uh, in person? Yeah, I mean, you've got the you've got the issue of covering the cost. I mean, obviously, with a fan run convention, you have a lot of volunteers, particularly some of the um, some technical staff who volunteered to do all these things, but they are giving up their time for free, you know, or for groats if you're at a Eastercon. Um, in order to make these things happen but you've still got to get the equipment like you say and and the the more you try and incorporate a virtual aspect the more equipment you're going to need in order to make it function and so you know you, you can envisage that someone who wanted to buy a virtual membership might not want to pay the full amount for an in-person membership because there will be elements of the con that they can't attend you know you're not going to be able to go to a book launch or or, you know, sit at the bar and, and, and all these things that kind of go around the convention. But there would, I think certainly for the fan run events, there would have to be some kind of cost because otherwise it would become impossible to put on w- without sponsorship, mm. basically. I think that in terms of the panel participation, one thing that I, just a few moments ago when you were speaking, I started thinking of was, you know how now on... Uh, on Saturday Kitchen, in order to have all the guests socially distanced for COVID purposes, you've got people you've got people sitting around the table, but half of them are on screen. So it's like a person TV screen, a person mm. a TV screen, and then the TV screens are the people zooming in from home. And obviously, they've got the budget to make these things happen, but surely that must be possible for at least some panels Mm. at a convention if you're holding it in a room where you do have screens that could dial people in and have people participating who otherwise wouldn't normally be able to and I'm now thinking of do you remember that prisoner convention that was in uh, Washington State yeah Uh, and we did something similar to that where we zoomed in to one of the panels as guests at the convention to talk about the Tally Ho podcast. And they were able to set that up. I think they were holding it in a movie theatre, weren't they? So I think we must have been on an enormous screen. (laughs) I'm quite glad that we couldn't see it, otherwise it would have been terrifying. But I, I can envisage something like that becoming a more permanent part of a convention because it would be interesting to hear 
more people on panels rather than without being too sound harsh about it but you go to enough of these conventions and you do sometimes hear the same people talk about the same things on the same panels over and over again yeah and i think an issue that stems from that is that the the panel is made up of who you have attending Mm. which is linked to what you were saying earlier about various restrictions that people might have whether it's time money any other personal issues that that, that that will prevent potentially the best panel forming it's not a slight on on the panels you do have but often it's not always possible to get the ideal set of people together okay you, you have to work with what you have now what would happen if if you could open up panel attendance by by virtue of, of uh, increasing the virtual aspect of of how conventions work to me that 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 leads on to a a slightly wider issue i think that some conventions have and i'm i'm saying some because you know obviously we haven't attended every convention but i think there is this ongoing and very important uh, debate and discussion about uh, representation on panels not necessarily in terms of content but actually in terms of who's actually on these panels mm. who you know whose voices are you know, I'll be bringing to the table in these in these discussions, uh, especially when a lot of convention panels aren't necessarily a lecture by a specific person, where it could just be that specific person who's talking, and that's all you actually want. Um, or it may be a panel which uh, requires a very specific expertise, and that's going to be limited to certain people as well. But often at fan conventions, the panels are discussions. And they do often include a mix of people from different uh, backgrounds whose perspectives are important. But there's been a real failure, I think, to uh, move beyond that, not to look at the uh, just the track records, but actually where possible to make sure that you are being as inclusive as possible in who you bring to the panels and making sure that everyone has you know, a fair shot at having their voices heard in these contexts. I think, you know, the panels are the things that people attend, and you could argue that this is the this is a this is a similar situation to the uh, ongoing discussions about representation uh, on screen in films and television. That often reflects back on the audience quite a lot, and and you and people want to see themselves in panels or represented in these panels, and I think. There is a bit of a failure in in the demographics that make up panels at the moment based on a multitude of different criteria. But I think virtual panels could completely do away with that. Um, you could suddenly actually get the best people for the panel and you wouldn't have to worry about the attendance pool. Mm. You know, you could actually start saying, well, we can make it the panel that is the most representative and diverse and open panel that that we can get because essentially if and again there's another barrier here but if somebody has a good enough internet connection to you know participate in the panel all of a sudden we could very quickly dent this idea that panels are made up of the same uh, people you could suddenly open up the whole thing and you could actually get that debate going different people different perspectives, all these different criteria that, that I think people are trying to quite rightly tackle in a step-by-step fashion. You could make a real jump in, in convention content if you suddenly started to improve the demographics of those on uh, panels and the fact that you could open up attendance to everyone in the world by adding a strong virtual element. You just wouldn't be restricted by sort of the physical limits of who was physically there. Uh, you could you could basically have everyone on who you wanted, irrespective of uh, race, gender, sex, all kinds of different you know uh, parameters that I think we need to address and open up in panels. Yeah, when you consider the list of reasons why people might find it difficult to attend a convention. There's going to be another one added on to that for the foreseeable future, which is anyone who, for health reasons, 
whether it's them or someone that they live with, has to be shielding hmm. until, if or when there's ever a vaccine. Yeah. And that's going to further restrict the number of people who can actually physically travel yeah. and you know stay in a hotel. I mean, you know, when when you go to a con, there's always a joke about con crud, which is that everyone <laughs> goes home from the con with a cold because everyone's been mingling together for several days in a hotel. And you know, it used to be funny, but it's kind of not funny anymore mm. that, that these things happen and everyone has to be concerned about them. Mm. But even in spite of that, you know, cons remain a really positive thing for people. They remain a positive thing for, you know, the attendees, for, you know, in the context of things like EasterCon, I think they're very important for authors, publishers, agents from that networking perspective as well. Um, they're a chance to connect with others. And I think that having some insight into how you could have parallel, you know, virtual content, it just means that without, you know, it may, it may be taking a pandemic to make us think about, you know, how to maybe do things differently. But interestingly, it does highlight these kind of aspects of us potentially being in a very changed world for the foreseeable future. So if the alternative option is to not have conventions because we can't hold them physically versus having virtual ones, I think there's going to need to be some push to understanding how a virtual convention could happen. I think it'd be different for different kinds of convention. But I think there's going to have to be a lot of engagement with the people who attend conventions as well, especially fan-run ones, which are, you know, by fans, for fans. Um, I think it's important that, that fans are part of that discussion as well. In a strange way, it does democratise how conventions happen. I think there's still going to be a big onus on the organising team to obviously put the convention on. But, you know, should we really be worrying from now on about making sure that we have a diverse panel if the reality is we could meet that through virtual means all of a sudden everyone can be a participant people shouldn't be excluded from things actually there's no reason for that anymore and to be frank i don't think there should even be an excuse for it anymore um, i don't see why some of these very stale debates should still be happening in the future because there are ways around it and i think that I'm not. I'm not going to say that we should look for, uh, you know, the positives in in this situation because <laughs> you know that uh, that's not how I want to frame it. But there are things we can learn from this that make that I think should maybe make us think about how things could be done differently. And it's not just a case of thinking about how you would do things differently at a physical convention to change the demographics of the people attending or making it a more open and welcoming environment for people. I think it's the fact that you have to think about how conventions maybe work. And some structural changes might always be necessary um, in order to uh, make, make these things happen. But I think it would be very difficult to do it in a physical form. And actually having a virtual component suddenly does allow a lot of things that have been difficult to bring in. You know, I think a lot of these things suddenly are now potentially possible and could show a, a very rapid change in how in how things happen at conventions. Yeah, sometimes it takes a, a massive event like this to force people to look at new ways of doing things, which you then later realise are a great idea and that we could have been doing for years, but we just didn't because it's very easy to keep going and doing things the same way over and over again. I mean, over the past few months, I've been working from home because my office has been closed since March. My office closed before the lockdown happened. They sent everyone home, said, here's a laptop, do not come in. The only people allowed in the building are the IT department and one person who is scanning post and emailing it to everyone. So most days we've both just been working at home, sitting in different rooms on our laptops. And the idea that that would be reality, you know, even a year ago, it would have seemed ridiculous. And yet, certainly from my perspective, there is 
nothing that I actually need to be in the office for. And everything that I was doing in the office, I can do at home. And yeah, I kind of miss the social aspect of being in the office and chatting to people. I don't miss commuting, Mm. the time or the cost of commuting. And I don't think that things are ever going to go back the way that they were. It's like the cat is out of the bag. You know, this works. And for some people it's better. For other people it's not better. For other people, I know, hate working from home and they want to be in the office. But there's, there can no longer be an excuse for saying, no, everyone has to be in the office just because, because you just ought to. Mm. It, it, it doesn't make sense anymore. And now that it's been proven that it can work, there's no logical reason to say to people, well, yeah, it works, but you're just not allowed to do it anymore. And I think something similar is going to have to change with conventions in the future where if virtual aspects of it can be brought in because of the pandemic and we realise that actually there are so many benefits to having this in terms of increased participation, better representation, more interesting panels happening because you have you know, increased representation and people being able to attend who otherwise wouldn't have been able to, there, there can be no logical reason to ever go back to just having everything only in person, only in a hotel, only if you can afford and are able to go, then it's, it, it changes everything for good, yeah. even though it, in some respects it feels like you know, these changes are temporary because of the pandemic. I don't think any of these changes are temporary. Yeah, and I think it is it is a quite a special thing to go to a convention in person. It's mm. nice to go. It's you know, and I think it would be a shame if if physical cons, you know, disappeared. That'd be a real shame. I think you know, for for attendees, it is a it's a nice event. As we've talked about, it's a it's a nice way to meet up with people, to meet new people. It's good for networking. Um, it's certainly very important in the context of places that have dealers rooms as a mm. you know as a means to well it's not only just for people to sell things but for people to actually find out about what's available i mean that there's a lot that goes on i know i'm probably not covering absolutely every aspect of it but there there are real elements of physical attendance that i think we haven't really thought about in terms of um, how you would incorporate them uh, virtually but that doesn't mean that that's just not a challenge that we have to think about in the future you know what i would like to see in uh, virtual conventions an easy one potentially um, i say easy but but i don't know how how easy it is to do but you know one really nice thing to go to sometimes i found and it's often it's often later in the day at, like at an easter con is when you have author readings mm. and they are really nice because often sometimes you just want to get away from the hustle and bustle of the bar for a little bit uh, you want to just do something for like half an hour, a short slot or something. And you might just see that there's a slot of maybe three people in the space of half an hour, 45 minutes reading something. And those could be really fun because I think it's a great thing for authors to have the chance to have that forum. But also it's great to listen to new things you've never heard before. Now, that would be a really interesting thing to incorporate into a virtual convention to actually have author readings. And I'm not saying that's going to solve the problem of not having a dealer's room, but that's one thing that would probably start to address the issue of how you can get authors talking about their new works and uh, reading from them in all different kinds of media. In a strange way, a convention is still a very limited pool of people to have buying your books. It's a great thing because it's, it probably collects a very passionate proportion of, of the fan base. So there's a plane going past. <laughs> but it would be really cool to be able to open up those kinds of avenues to essentially the whole world. You know, it shouldn't then be a thing where authors are then pushed to have to sell things online, if, if that makes sense. I think it always has to be in the context of a of a convention. That, that That's almost the umbrella that you could use in order to bring um, a literary event together in, you know, in some capacity. And I think that's one of the interesting things about conventions is they're not just sales things. It's a mixture of lots of different topics and and some aspects are about author retrospectives. They're about discussions about current things in you know, science fiction and fantasy, but also related things. It opens up how tangential you can be. And so I think there are lots of options about what content you could put into a virtual convention. And those things, I think, really should be explored as a means to, yeah, open up 
open up what a convention can be. I think we just have to think differently about what the potential of these things actually is. Yeah, I I do miss the dealer's room. I miss just being able to go for a 20-minute mooch around in the dealer's room in between panels, you know? Because no matter where a convention gets held, there's always, you know, new small presses or regional publishers or national publishers that you haven't heard of before that you end up finding and you end up coming home with a, a suitcase full of books, half of which were books that are completely new to you and particularly even publishers that are completely new to you and you know in the years that follow you you end up then looking at other things those publishers have brought out and it would be very difficult to recreate that in a in a virtual sense i mean when we went to the Worldcon in helsinki we found so many awesome <laughs> books by finnish authors you know other northern european authors and publishers who you, we would never normally come across them at a Worldcon somewhere else or an Eastercon. And you would miss that sort of uniqueness that each convention, particularly from the travelling conventions, brings to each particular time that it happens. Thinking about all the conventions that I've really missed going to this year, the one that I think I've probably been the saddest about it being completely cancelled not being able to go has been Hyper Japan, Hmm. which uh, takes place in London every summer. I think it would have been the weekend before last. And I love just wandering around Hyper Japan because because it's a sort of convention of Japanese culture. Not only are there, you know, books and comics and um, toys and all sorts of things, but there are amazing food stands and you can go on sake tasting Hmm. tours and things like that and this year I was planning on taking my sister for the first time for a day trip and it's a real shame that none of that could take place and that's the kind of convention that you could never really recreate online because although there are some aspects of it which are performances you know they have rock bands and and dancing and uh, all kinds of things that you could broadcast, but it, it would never really be the same as being able to just mooch around what is almost like a one giant convention just happening for 10 hours a day. Mm. The, the atmosphere is part of the reason why you want to go and you know, see the amazing cosplayers and stuff like that. It's it, I, I would feel incredibly sad if conventions like that could never come back in some capacity. Yeah, and I think that speaks to the idea of of the balance of of what happens at a convention in terms of you know the kind of discussions and panels versus the I don't know how I describe it but maybe the the support for content creators as well so mm. at a literary convention it might be supporting authors and artists and and things like that in a place like hyper japan that content is product mm. you know and i think there are elements like you say that are very hard to replicate i mean although although the performances could be put online that's not the reason why you'd go there it's the chance to often help support lots of uh you know small independent people Mm. who are you know who are very small entities but get their power from being at a big focus convention where everyone is coming to see everything and Mm. they are people who you might just walk past or you might or other people might go because they know that those people are in attendance but you it's how you find out about things yeah and and support them yeah uh, yeah, but it's how we um, first found uh, Mayamada, yeah. for example, was being yeah. at Hyper Japan. Yeah, and and uh, the, the, I think there are there are probably so many small enterprises who rely on those kind of conventions for a lot of their sales every year. Uh, you know, even if it's not a sale that happens at the convention, it's making people aware that they exist. You know, that it's going to change the ecosystem. Mm for those small businesses if conventions don't come back. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. And I think a nice aspect about how we move forward from a virtual perspective in terms of conventions is also about the means through which virtual events can take place. I think there's been a huge growth in the last uh, few years. I know it's been around for a long time, but there's been a huge growth, I think most recently, of... uh, you know, audio and and visual podcasting. Mm. Okay, so as more people become aware of the fact that they might have 
a podcast app on their phone. Uh, they might follow YouTube channels or, or other kinds of uh, content producers in all these different kinds of audiovisual formats. It's less strange, I think, to start introducing virtual elements. You could probably argue that 20 years ago, virtual attendance might have been a panelist maybe dialing into a conference call. I'm not saying that that would have happened. That's how you can imagine the solution taking place. But now the fact is people can start to connect globally using different media. And I think accessing that, that can happen through the various different formats of podcasts and things that allow people to watch things online, listen to them on phones and things like that. But I do like the fact that the virtual con content that we've seen recently with certain things has been um, still a visual medium. Mm. So you still are able to engage with it and watch it. I think it's it's still very different when you're watching something that's pre-recorded. Sorry, not pre-recorded, but something where you're watching it after it's been on. Mm. I think it actually be kind of interesting to watch these things live because I think there's no reason why you couldn't get involved in the discussion you know through comments whether it's you know live tweeting things or addressing questions to to people talking for example it is slightly different if you're if you're watching it afterwards but that is a nice thing the fact that panels are there afterwards it means that people can access them outside of you know specific time zones they can watch them when they're actually available to do it uh, they may find out about things um, afterwards it might avoid clashes with um, you know, parallel streams and things like that. There are so many different things that you can get out of a virtual convention, but I think we have to start thinking differently about about how those things work. And I think that the conventions that survive are ones that increase the virtual content, not at the expense of dropping any physical presence. Um, although I can see now the birth of purely virtual conventions, probably new things happening. But I think when those things become virtual, we have to use them to keep keep the spirit of a convention going as best we can, knowing the caveats of not being in person um, and knowing there are certain things that you could never replicate, whether it's going to the bar or, or some aspects of the networking thing. Understanding how we can bring some of those aspects in, if we can, which I think just requires a lot of creativity to think about how to do it. But I think critically, is it goes back to this this thing of the fact that the world has become a lot smaller Mm. you know covid has brought that to the fore but it's been happening for a long time anyway in terms of how connected people can be and i think it's a real opportunity i know we've prattled on about it earlier but it's a real opportunity i think to address issues of representation and diversity in the discussions which are shaping you know genres and 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 how people are thinking about the things they're interested in going forward you know it's a really good opportunity to to invest in that in that kind of content and i think if we change things virtually in terms of participation i think arguably it might then reflect back into the participation at physical events mm. because it suddenly makes things a different environment mm. um, it changes how inclusive these events are and it may you know make events like this more accessible and i mean accessible in probably all its different meanings it just opens things up and i think there's a there's a strength of having a virtual aspect that we can bring in so let's say that for next year's worldcon there was a virtual attendance level um do you reckon that you'd be interested in going as a virtual attendee it's a loaded question. Um, if <laughs> okay, it, well, not Worldcon, but any convention. Uh, that's a, yeah, 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 yeah. That's the thing. I think if it was, um, <laughs> if there was a virtual attendance option, and it was clear what that was and how it would work, I think I probably would, and I'd probably attend more conventions uh, potentially. I don't know how that would work in terms of pricing structure and things like that, but I think it would be really interesting to be able to participate in those kind of events. But throwing it back at you, would you be more inclined to attend an established convention with a virtual attendance and doing it that way? Or would you actually now, off the back of what we've seen in terms of the changing ways that certain conventions are now moving online in some aspects, would you now be more interested in looking for new, completely virtual conventions to, to go to? 
So would you, you know, if something sprung up, would you be more inclined to go to that? Or would you be thinking, oh, until a physical convention has really proven that it's able to have a change in how it runs from a virtual perspective, I, you know, I would, I would do it that way. I think if, if there was a completely new, solely virtual convention, I would be kind of interested in going to that just to, well, almost to be to be part of a movement into seeing if you can make these things work. Yeah. I think it would be interesting to see how it was going to establish itself. I think if it was an existing convention, there would need to be a particular reason why I would really want to go to that convention virtually, whether it's a particular guest or maybe a particular stream that of panels that I was going to be really interested in. Um, for some of the conventions that we've been to in the past, I would like to start going back to them physically once in a while, if only to meet up with friends who yeah. I miss, you know. Um, and there, there is an aspect, particularly to some of the travelling conventions, um, by which I mean the ones that are held in a different place every year, where you also get to experience being in a different city and have a, a sort of mini holiday while mm. you're there, which, again, you would miss out on. But I, I would certainly be interested in going to something virtually just to see how it functions and see how, it, it, you, you know, almost as a, a sort of test run to see what the teething problems are and to see how these things could be put together. Um, I think it'd be interesting as an experience in itself. And before we stop our, our rambling thoughts about about how <laughs> conventions are, are running at the moment and how they could potentially run in the future one thing that i remembered just as you were talking about you know going to different conventions and, and the physical aspects and and the virtual aspects and seeing how different things are done one thing which i think hasn't really been exploited so far in any of the virtual content i've seen is changing the format of panels and by that, um, I don't know about you, but the number of times I've gone to a panel where an hour isn't enough, mm. you know, or it's 50 minutes or as I was saying earlier, you know, it's 45 minutes, 50 minutes and they stop and they take questions. All it takes is for people to ramble on a bit too much or to go off on a tangent and some horrible things can happen at panels. Mm. It can be going off topic and never actually covering the thing that was meant to be done so you might have gone in with the intention of it being about something everyone going in with that intention but it just derailing very quickly oh i've been to those panels <laughs> and the other thing is um you know if if the discussion is getting meatier all the audience discussion starts to become quite prominent simply because sometimes a panel doesn't need 45 minutes of panel it needs 10 minutes of panel and using the panel as a as a chance to kind of get the conversation going you know a, a panel virtually can be different things mm. and you know arguably you don't need to have an hour-long panel it could be an hour and a half it could be two hours it could be half an hour if it's not very long and what i found interesting on the on the comic-con at home panels were well given that everything was pre-recorded um it seemed odd when they would kind of artificially say oh well i can see the red light going so that's our hour up um <laughs> you know it was it was interesting that they would, um, you know, still keep the format a little bit. Mm. What was nice was that some of the panels were only half an hour. You know, I, I remember watching um, the conversation with the cast of What We Do in the Shadows. It was like 30 minutes. You know, they don't go on longer than they need to and they can stop at a certain time. But I think panel formats can change. It shouldn't just be about it starts at nine o'clock. It finishes at, you know, 10 p.m. And there's hour, 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 hour. And then the nightmare situation hits in when it's you really want to have dinner and you can't because another panel is starting and you're trying to panic about whether you're going to have con food or go outside. and It, it, it gets a mess, but you can change how you schedule things. Mm. And the other aspect of, of panels, which I realised we don't talk about enough, I think, at physical conventions or virtual ones, is the role of the moderator. Because it becomes, a, I think, a difficult thing to corral a panel at a physical convention. It takes one person just to go off on one and 90% of the content could come from one person and other people may just not feel able to interject or they may not get the chance to speak. Mm. But on a on a virtual one, you know, if you're in charge of that, you can mute whoever you want. <laughs> I don't know. Um, 
I think it's the fact that I, th I think um, you know moderation does does become a lot more important in a virtual panel yeah. because you have to give everyone a chance to do things. And I think I've been to a lot of panels where a few you things happen. You wish you had a mute button. <laughs> well, you wish you had a mute panel is one thing, but sometimes the moderator talks for most of the time. Mm. Doesn't let the you know the guest speak on the panel. Other times they're unable to keep keep control of everything, and and that and that's not always the fault of the moderator. It depends. You know, there's lots of factors involved. But I think moving to panels virtually, that will take a lot of work to actually make sure that moderators are able to and know what the remit of what that role is. It will involve keeping the discussion going and also including everyone in these things. And I think that will be a really nice thing to see happen as well. Again, it's the idea of how, you know, if you is this a chance to refresh how conventions are done? Well, one thing is, should we change the format of how the day works and how the panels work and things like that. Maybe there are different ways that, that panels should work and maybe we should think about all those things. But yeah, that's that's one of the things that was floating around in my head because I realised that you know, that's another thing you can change. You know, a number of times I've gone to something where you realise that there's time is running out, you really have a question and you know that they're just going to say, oh, well, we've actually run out of time and we can't <laughs> take any questions. And, you, and you're thinking, well, I've, I've been here for the whole hour waiting to ask this. And you might think it's the question that other people would be interested to hear as well, or you want to know what other people think. And that, that opportunity is lost. But maybe if it's virtual, there's a bit more flexibility in how you hold panels. And that could be a really interesting uh, thing in the future. I think it'd be great to revisit this topic next summer yeah. when hopefully some conventions have already happened and we can see what's been happening in terms of making them semi-virtual or virtual whether any conventions at all are going to be able to happen in person it's it's something that's going to evolve rapidly i think in the next few years and uh yeah it would be interesting to come back to the topic 12 months from now and see what's actually occurred yeah and i think there are big positives that i really don't want to see um be lost in the ether over the coming months mm -hmm. um whether it's in terms of the kind of content people put out there um, you know, it increases what you can talk about. It increases the nature of, of of how tangential you can be. You can have more focused discussions sometimes just by having these things virtually. Um, and critically, as we've said, you know, I think it does provide an immediate route to change, um, you know, the demographic and uh, diversity of attendees and, you know, who is represented here. But there are costs associated with all of this. There are challenges involved in the logistics and infrastructure of putting on a virtual convention. Um, I don't know if it's different, whether it's part physical, part virtual or just virtual. And I would hate to see physical ones go away. But I think, is this the next step in the evolution of these things? So, yeah, coming back to this topic in a year would be really interesting. So it would be really interesting to hear what our listeners think about the prospect of virtual conventions or being a virtual attendee at a convention you know are you someone who goes to loads of conventions have you never been to one but would think about going to one if it was virtual we'd really love to get feedback from people that, as to what they feel about the landscape of conventions right now and what they want to see from conventions in the future so if you want to get in touch with us about that or indeed anything else you can find us on twitter at tfcaa there's a Facebook group, Time for Cakes and Ale, or on our website, timeforcakesandale.com. Yeah, do get in touch because I think this is an interesting topic and I'm sure that you know some of you might have some opinions on, on the state of conventions so far, but also um, how changes we're seeing now uh, may become very important permanent fixtures to how conventions happen. Uh, they are an important thing. They're important parts for how various aspects of, of genre media work obviously for other you know for other topics as well but um i suppose that's our experience and uh, it'd be great to hear what you think about you know physical cons versus virtual cons what you'd like to see do you have any ideas about how you would change things do you think they should change um yeah just let us know what you think i'm sure there's lots of uh, lots of people out there who might have opinions on this and we'd love to hear from you so get in touch on on twitter is probably the best place just message us back or facebook the website etc but until next time, from both of us, be, be seeing, seeing you. you.